in many congregations today. This is Christian Unity Sunday. It is always somewhere in between January, 20, January 18 and 25 for many churches. Those are the feasts of St. Peter and St. Paul. And a reminder that, we, that they came together just as we can come back together with Jesus as our Lord and our guide. So that, that idea of unity pervades our service and hopefully the sermon, it definitely pervades who Jesus was. So we're going to think about first this situation at the wedding at Cana. Jesus' mother is never called Mary in the Gospel of John. She's always the mother of Jesus. She was concerned about her son, and I read this other story about a mother who was concerned about her son. This happened in the mid-1990s. The Associated Press reported that a mother wanted to give her son's career a boost and help him make some extra money. Her son worked as a seasonal firefighter for the United States Forest Service and received a base salary but was paid extra while fighting fires. You, you know where I'm going. So his mother saw to it that he got to fight fires. Investigators said that this 60-year-old Mount Shasta woman had set five brush fires over a year along a northern California highway and was up for 20 years in jail for her maternal attempt to advance her son's career. Not surprisingly, her son no longer worked for the Forest Service. So here we are today, scripturally, at this little town of Cana in Galilee. Was Jesus' mother trying to advance his career? Now, according to costofwedding.com, weddings in Roanoke City average over $23,000. A wedding. But in Jesus' state, and that's usually one day, maybe it could be a weekend, you know, Friday to Sunday, In Jesus' day, the wedding celebration lasted about a week. So the cost of seven days' worth of a reception with an open bar had to be astronomical. I don't know how they paid for it back then either, but hospitality was critical in their society. And so for the host to run out of wine was humiliating. Jesus' mother said... When she found out that the wine had given out, she said to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, most sons I know do not like to be told what to do. So, she didn't tell him what to do. She simply implied that he should do something about this problem. Men know we're being manipulative ladies, at least sometimes. And sometimes I understand they don't mind so much. But Jesus minded. He said to his mother, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus had an attitude with his mother. I kind of like that. Or it's kind of a relief, I guess, at least. (laughs) Now, Last week we talked about Jesus' inauguration of his ministry at his baptism. But it seems here that he's not quite ready to leave the starting gate. You ever felt like doing something or you needed to do something for someone else, but you just didn't feel like doing it? I think everyone feels that way now and then. 
One mother wrote to thank her friend for passing along the playpen that her children had outgrown. And in the note, she said, Many thanks for the playpen. It's being used every day. From 2 to 3 p.m., I get in it to read, and the children can't get near me. (laughs) So when Jesus protests to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' mother then turns her attention away from Jesus to the servants. And the Greek word is diakonois, deacon. To the servants, she says, do whatever he tells you. Just an extra little nudge there. So did Jesus act out of guilt? Did he act out of obligation? Did he send up a little prayer to his heavenly father asking for wisdom and guidance? We can't know that. We do know that Jesus responded, though, with action. And men, you can assume that he would have done so even if his mother had said nothing, nothing at all. Women will continue to think otherwise. Let's tie this in with chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians concerning spiritual gifts. It helps to have a little background here. I mentioned that earlier that Paul had planted the church in Corinth and has gotten word that, as happens in churches of every age, church members were at odds. In chapter 11, the one preceding this chapter we talk about today, Paul addresses the issue of wealthier members of the congregation who are coming to their dinners, their gatherings, and they're eating all the good food first so that the day laborers, when they arrive later, they don't have as much to eat or as good a food to eat. And so then they talk about the Lord's Supper, too, in that passage, or Paul does. So now in chapter 12, Paul is transitioning from the tangible gifts of food and bread and wine to intangible gifts, to gifts of the Spirit, Gifts that people share with one another in a way like food, but not so physical. He says, these gifts are given for the sake of the whole congregation, for the common good, is how he states it in this version. To each person is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here, Paul senses that the issue is that some people are using their gifts to magnify themselves instead of God. It's said that one young pastor often boasted in public that all the time he needed to prepare his Sunday sermon was the few minutes it took him to walk to the church from the parsonage which was next door. After a few weeks of hearing his sermons, the congregation bought a new parsonage five miles away. Our spiritual gifts are not for our personal use. They're not so that we can boast about who we are and the gifts that God has given to us. Paul was not passive-aggressive like this congregation that bought the new parsonage. Paul was direct. You have been given gifts to benefit the common good, not your own. Whether you are gifted in the area of wisdom or faith or healing or speaking the truth when it needs to be heard... These gifts are not for your own good, as if God cared for no one but you. They are given to build up the congregation, given to build up Jesus' church. 
Now, another caveat is to be careful lest the church become the object of our affection and worship instead of our Lord Jesus. In these times of economic uncertainty, when avoiding one fiscal cliff leaves us vulnerable to others later on, anxieties in the church rise around the subject of money. And one reason for this is because we want the church to survive. We want this church to survive. Think of all the time and the energy and the financial resources that have been invested in this beauty of this building, in the church staff through the years, in ministries that people that the congregation has helped with. Money is usually a challenge in churches and in other nonprofits, and so it's always at the forefront of conversations and reasons why we can't do ministry. Paul sees it differently. If you've been to the restaurant called Mirko at uh, Towers, the Italian restaurant on the lower level in the corner, their glasses inside say, I, don't, I won't get these words right, but there's a, a line that goes halfway, it goes all the way around the cup in the center of it, the glass, and on the top it says something like ottimista, and at the bottom it says pessimista, optimist, pessimist, half full, half empty. <laughs> Pretty clever. And I think our job is to, you know, to see things as half full. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. To see how things can happen instead of how they can't. Paul says, we have everything we need. He says to the church at Corinth, you have all of these gifts, and they're all given for the common good. And just imagine what the congregation could do if everyone was using his or her gift in a way that built up the congregation. It's wise in our personal lives, and it's wise in the church to reevaluate now and then to take a discerning look at our resources and figure out whether we're using them wisely. Often, adjustments are necessary. Jesus made an adjustment, or at least it appears so. After his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, Our attention is drawn to the six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Huge water jars, 20 to 30 gallons they held. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to this chief steward. And so they did. And the chief steward looked at or tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it had come from, though the servants did. And the steward called the bridegroom, for it was the bridegroom's family who hosted this at the time, and said, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus used his gift to transform something ordinary into something extraordinary. Maybe his mother cajoled him into using it. Maybe he would have done it anyway. It doesn't matter. Jesus used his gift for the common good. He used it without boasting about it, 
And a few in the inner circle knew at first, but word must have spread, not from Jesus, but from those who saw what he had done. Because the last verse in today's sections from John 2 says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you're handy with things around your house, you realize that the right tool makes a significant difference. I know this only from hearsay. Whether it's the right wrench for plumbing or the right pliers for a more delicate task, the correct tool increases the efficiency of the work and decreases the time it takes. We are the tools that God uses to help unify our one earth under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It's an extraordinary task, and yet we're working for a God who takes ordinary things, takes ordinary people, and transforms them into something extraordinary. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have the audacity to believe that people everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered men have torn down, other-centered men can build up. Jesus did that with ordinary water at the wedding party. He changed ordinary water not just into fermented grape juice, not just into any wine, but into good wine. Good wine. How often does one bottle of wine please the tastes of everybody at a table? Some like it sweet, some like it dry, some like it tangy. But this is the good wine that everyone would like. Do you see that picture of unity? It would unify people. You think about maybe when you've gone to a great concert or a great movie and what happens there unifies the people who are together and everyone comes out, even if they don't know each other, wow, wasn't that great? Did you listen to that? Did you notice when the lead actor said whatever? It unifies people. Jesus does the same thing when we allow that to happen. He calls us to be other-centered people. And sometimes that means making hard decisions. It means stepping up to bat even if we haven't done very well in practices. It means sacrificing pleasure or comfort for well-being. It means trying again after we've failed multiple times. Paul tells us and shows us, Paul tells us, And Jesus shows us how to make the most of our gifts, no matter who nudges us to use them. And that way, we bring out the good wine that everyone may enjoy together. Let's pray together. Holy One, you have created us with distinct and wonderful gifts. We pray for your guidance in seeking to know what they are. For they do seem to change over the years. 
Sometimes we are better at one thing in our lives and then at a different period, we have different gifts that can be better used. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that enables them within us and enlivens them within us. And we pray for your holy wisdom and discernment to see what they are and how they might be used to build up your earth. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be other-centered people. To help us to care. Help us to love. Help us to encourage. Help us to heal. Lord, we pray for those who are seeking healing. And we thank you for the ways that you are working in their lives already. We pray for Myrtle Craft, for Judy Ferrano, for Mildred Fitzgerald, for Buddy Garrett, for Mary Ellen Gearhart, for Ernie Dyerly and the family of the donor, and for Clint Hopkins and his family. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would offer a strong sense of your peace and your hope into each of these families. Grant them stamina and strength and love. We pray that we too might carry that love from this place, recognizing what you have done for us, that you make extraordinary things out of ordinary us. Help us then to be open to you, Lord God, Help us to see ourselves with your eyes and then to generously share ourselves with others. Lord, we pray for unity in our congregation and in all congregations. We pray for peace and unity around our world. Help us to let it begin within so that we might carry it wherever we go. All these things we pray in your holy name. Amen.